Hello and welcome to Underscore, the podcast from ASIL Allen, featuring leading experts in economics and public policy. I'm your host and CEO of ASIL Allen, Paul Hislop. We're joined here today by my colleague, Jan Paul Van Poort. We all know him as JP, by the way, to discuss food security in Australia. Questions about the sustainability of global food supplies have been bubbling away in the background for decades. However, recent events have led to significant disruptions in global food supply chains and increased food insecurity in parts of the world. These include disruptions caused by COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine, tensions in the Indian Pacific region, and large increases in input costs for food production, and that includes fuel, fertilisers and pesticides. Australia is one of the most food secure nations in the world. However, we have not been immune from recent global events, leading to less availability and higher costs of inputs. We've also faced severe local challenges, including fires and then floods, and more recently, biosecurity challenges, all of which have had some effect on the security of food supplies. Food security in Australia is something that my colleague JP has been thinking about a lot recently. JP leads Asa Allen's agribusiness practice and is an expert in the sector. JP has provided advice widely across the agribusiness sector, including providing strategic advice to both governments and peak bodies within the sector. JP, how are you? I'm so glad you could join me here today. I'm very well, thanks, Paul, and delighted to be here with you. So this is a this is a big topic, JP. Um, um, what what sort of made you come to sort of thinking about this so much, or it, so much recently? What, what's been the driver? Because I think you're in the process of putting together a, a little insight piece for us. Uh, yeah, look, it was triggered, funnily enough, by my son's geography teacher who asked me to give a talk on food security. So I said, oh, that'll be a doddle. I'll knock it off in half an hour. And then as I dug out and put all the bits together, I realised that this is a really rich topic. And what really struck me is when I went to lecture the school children on it, I asked them at the beginning about what proportion of them thought Australia had food security. And um, two thirds of the class put up their hands and said they didn't believe that we had food security in Australia, which I thought was very surprising because my view is on the whole, um, we're pretty good. Yeah, I, I would have thought if you would have asked most Australians, actually, they would have said that we have got food security because I would have thought most people would see us as a bit of a breadbasket, sort of helping to feed the world. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is people now increasingly talk about sustainable food security rather than security in its traditional um, domain. So therefore, people worry about the environmental impacts and all the other things that come along. Um, and, and particularly climate change is very pertinent to a lot of people. Um, the other thing that that I learned when I was unpacking this a bit is also that it's not just about the supply of food, it's also the degree to which people can access food, which they call insecurity. And, um, and even though we score very well again as a nation, there are people in Australia who do experience food security insecurity on a regular basis. And what are the causes for that? Is, is that um, no shops or is it poor supply chains or poor distribution systems? Um, it's that and it's all of the above. And I think we've all experienced some temporary shocks ourselves with some of the COVID lockdowns and those things. And, and also the food supply system has experienced it as well, you know, finding butchers to um, 
to process the meat, um, the lack of fresh food and vegetables, the inability to access shops. But there are certain vulnerable populations where not only do they have a transport to get there, the socioeconomic um, circumstances, how much they can afford. Um, and also a lot of households simply don't have a strong ability to actually store and prepare food as well. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that actually. Um, so that's about infrastructure for, the, for those uh, communities. Yeah, very much so. And, uh, and I think what I've, we also highlighted is that we've seen some very strong community movements emerge during COVID to help um, source and provide food to local communities, as well as, you know, obviously working off the back of long-term initiatives like Food Bank. So I think a lot of people's um, experience probably in relation to food security or insecurity in recent times has probably been the $12 lettuce and the $13 Lebanese cucumbers, um, which are probably part driven by, um, or a lot of it's been driven by um, flooding over the recent recent uh, uh, last six months or so. So isn't that just a temporary phenomenon? Yeah, I, I think it's very important to separate out perishable versus storable food. So things, you know, that are stable, like your, your rice and those sort of things, um, they, we can store those for long periods of time. But the leafy greens, for example, um, you know, we had three big valleys that were knocked out simultaneously by some floods this year. And that's why the lettuces were so expensive for a period of time, because basically a 12-week crop just disappeared out of the system totally. Um, so that they will balance in time. I think what's heightened it in our collective consciousness at the moment is there have been a number of shocks that have come um, all together at one time that have heightened awareness around this issue. Um, and so suddenly people, it's just front of mind thing for all of us now a bit more because um, you've got to remember that really over the last 10 years, food price, uh, food supply has been very stable and globally the price of food has been dropping and now it's starting to increase. So what, what was driving uh, that, that fall in prices? Was it productivity or was it lower other yeah. input costs? Um, so very connected, long, sophisticated value chains where sourcing things from across the world and supplying it and all that sort of stuff. So really driving efficiency plus a lot of technology that's come in, continues to come into the sector. And, um, you know, they always say in agriculture that um, one of the major reasons we need increases in productivity is to um, over offset the long-term decline in the price of goods sold. Um, now, we've made a lot of gains as a country in producing high-quality premium foods, which we export to the world. Um, you know, on the books, we produce enough food to feed 70 million people. Um, but at the same time, you have to remember, for a lot of people, food affordability is paramount, um, and not just overseas. It's in Australia as well. A lot of people still just buy food on the basis of price. Yeah, that's... Uh... And, and that may be that they're then buying less nutritional food. Is that what you're saying? Although I would have thought that the processed foods, which maybe have less nutritional value, tend to be more expensive. No, the the stats are quite, this are quite interesting. So a lot of processed food is actually um, relatively cheap, particularly once you take on board um, the time and effort to cost of actually preparing food. So so convenience is a big factor here as well. Um, and so, so people, uh, processed foods, um, eating too much of it, the dietitians say, isn't that good for you? You're better off eating fresh food. 
Um, so there's all these competing tensions that all of us as food consumers need to consider every day when we make decisions. Some people even go further and argue not only is it hunger that should be included in food security, it should be eating too much food should be included in the construct of food insecurity. Yeah, you start to get into some really difficult areas when you decide someone's eating too much. I mean, how much of that is um, literally eating too much and how much of it's just a personal preference? And I think that's that's some of the real difficulties you get into um, once you start dealing with the issues. But but a lot of, I think a lot of that could be dealt with um, by better information. So... And I know, I know convenience is a big factor and a lot of people spend a lot of time at work, two-parent two, two working families, and don't have the time to necessarily spend the time cooking a meal from scratch. But I, one of the things I think, and I, th- I think we don't put enough effort into providing information uh, to the population about the benefits of eating fresher food versus processed food, and maybe even teaching them how to prepare some of that food more quickly or at least providing the information to allow them to access it. I mean, shows like, um, you know, the, the modern cooking shows, I think, are probably actually quite helpful in that respect, although they tend to be a bit bit more upmarket in the way they do things. But at least it gives people an ins- some sort of idea about how to go ahead and prepare food. The other thing, yeah. I think, is the question about what you're buying and the labelling laws. Um, and I've I find it very frustrating from a personal point of view that we continue to kowtow to the, um, you know, the the, the, the the production side of the industry um, and, and don't actually enforce stronger labelling laws so that people actually know what they're buying. Oh, absolutely. So the, the role of education and full information is really important here. Um, and we also know that for, um, you know, teaching people good food habits um, is it needs to be like an experience thing rather than just read a manual because not everybody likes to read. And so that's why you've seen things like um, Stephanie Alexander's um, school food gardens be so successful because you're basically teaching people good habits earlier on in their life. Um, so I think it's why it's important that everybody learns how to cook, for example. But the, the labelling, you know, you, you're really talking about the blend of a whole range of different interests. And that's an area where Australia isn't as strong as some other countries around the world. And um, it can be very complicated and then they, they get into, it gets lost in committee for years while people argue about it. But that's no doubt is an area that we could do better at it as a nation. Uh, and I think the other interesting thing is that coming back to the, Australia being the breadbasket of the world, um, that's often used to distract us from the fact that we can do better in Australia as well as make a significant contribution in supplying food to the wider world. Yeah, so, so I think uh, currently, am I right, by, we, we produce about $100 billion worth of gross value added in the, um, in the, in the production sector of um, oh, that's the that's the aspiration. Oh, that's the aspiration. Yeah, yeah. So, what is it about seventy or eighty billion now? Yeah, and look, it's it's, it's an important point because Australia, you know, does produces food in you know, one of the most variable climates in the world, and we do it exceptionally well. So it goes up, it goes down a bit um, by whatever the conditions, both in the markets and in the climate, are on any given point in time. But um, the other thing is that. It's been, you know, we continue to grow more and more and, uh, and we continue to look at ways of doing that more sustainably. And we do that decade in, decade out. So, so what, what, what would we need to do to 
increase the production of food in Australia, or at least it could increase the value of the, the food value we produce. Yeah, look, there's there's a whole range of different things we can do, but basically, I think the number one thing is when you grow food, is you've got to keep in mind who you're growing it for. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's an ultra premium, fully branded with all kinds of ethical consideration um, niche to something that's just good, wholesome food at a fair um, price. Um, it, it's understanding the consumer um, and delivering it. The other thing is we need to make sure that it's safe. Uh, and Australia has very high food safety standards. Uh, and we also increasingly need to make sure that it's environmental sustainability and, and increasingly even things like the ethics around the whole production system are becoming very, very important to consumers, but also to capital markets. And so that's called ESG, um, environmental and social governance. And that seems to be becoming quite a big force. And so we need to meet those requirements as a nation. Um, and we are doing some amazing um, work in those spaces, but also it seems to be that that providing that integrity that underpins it is really, really important. So we often hear about um, food waste. Is food waste a big issue within our food production and, um, and distribution system, or is it something that we're on top of? Um, well, the FIAL, the Food Innovation Australia Limited, did some studies on it a couple of years ago, and they identified that you know there's there's quite a lot of waste going on, um, you know millions of tons every year, and it's about half in the production and half in the consumption. So um, we have funny things like uh, we uh, particularly in perishable food, we tend to produce or in certain segments produce too much at one point in time, and then people can't sell it. Um, there's also the perfect pear, the perfect apple, and then it's discarded because it doesn't meet the requirements. And that's why you see in the supermarkets now, you know, the Uglies brand where they have minor imperfections, but it's still safe to eat to try and increase the consumption of those goods. Um, and then, you know, uh, obviously in the processing, we lose a bit and people are increasingly looking for novel uses of the waste streams, um, creating more food or turning it into some sort of digested product. Uh, and then finally, households are notorious for buying too much and throwing a lot in the tip. And is that is that because they're not well enough educated about what they're doing, or is it just simply that they like to have the choice and are prepared to throw some of it away? I think it's about choice. Um, mm. You know, people um, they always say you should never go shopping on an empty stomach, and maybe too many people go shopping <laughs> on an empty stomach. Food waste at the production end, and I thought your your point was interesting about. Uh, People growing too much um, uh, is is that could that be improved by better information to producers about what the consumers' preferences are or, or the volumes the consumers are willing to buy or is that just something that's uh, intractable? Oh look, this is probably one of the biggest areas that's been studied, particularly in the again in the fresh produce areas, We're trying to get demand and supply to match up. Uh, particularly in fruit and vegetables. Um, the ACCC has looked at this endlessly. The, the, the industry have tried various code of conducts and a whole range of different things, but matching supply, getting information to be shared so the markets clear out properly is still one of the biggest challenges because, you know, the uh, people turn up or too much of one thing turns up at the market at any given time. You also have some, some odd things like um, bananas are uh, like an absolute, as a retailer, you must have a banana. You must have bread, milk, and banana. 
Um, so we as a nation produce more bananas than we need. Um, but then bananas are grown in, in cyclone-prone areas. So quite often um, bananas are wiped out by cyclones, which is very sad for the people in those areas, but measures it out. And we saw that after Cyclone Yazi when the price of bananas began to go up, go up and consumers, there was a lot of consumer outrage around it because there's also a price dimension around bananas. So, so you get these mismatches about people's beliefs that they need to have food available all of the time. And I think this again comes back to the local food movement and people who promote seasonal produce is, I suppose we are in a very luxurious position as a nation with our strong supply chains and international markets. You can virtually buy every type of food every single day. And then we get used to that. While if you look at it historically, you know, if you swap one food out for another on any given day, it's not really going to hurt you terribly much. But then the retailers are trying to keep us happy by making sure we have all food available every single day. I find that quite interesting uh, that, you know, the Aussie example with the bananas or, or the recent example with the lettuces or the Lebanese cucumbers, which are one of my favourites, um, and, you know, paying $13 for a kilo of Lebanese, Lebanese uh, cucumbers was a, was a new new thing for me. But, I mean, I, I can see, I think about what's going on. Yazi comes along and knocks out a lot of banana, banana uh, plantations or you can't grow lettuces because the fields have been flooded for two weeks. Um, so it makes sense to me that they're going to be in short supply, uh, prices are going to go up. I know that in time they're going to restart reproducing again because banana, how long do banana trees take to grow? About a year or two. And and lettuces you can grow in 12 or 14 weeks, I think. So why is it that people are so engaged with not having prices change when the supply Changes and not adapting to that. What 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 can we do to help them understand that better? I think it's um, uh, like I said at the start. I think the, there's been a culmination of a number of shocks that have occurred relatively close to together. So you've got um, you've got things like the um, the war in Ukraine driving trade for grain, uh, for example, and those things driving up wheat prices. You've got um, shortages of you know, fuel fertilisers and a whole range of things, like you said, so increasing cost. Labor's problematic at the moment because of uh, shortages that were problematic in all parts of the economy. And so, um, so prices start to drift up. And I think the main thing that people are saying is we're so used to the, everything being quite stable for so long that as it becomes a little bit more uncertain, we're not used to it. And because a number of them have happened together at the same time, it's almost like we're having a bit of collective anxiety. And some of that seems to be recognising, like you say, a lot of these things are short run shocks. But the one thing that looks like it's beginning to change a bit is the, the more critical consideration about whether we're facing a boiled frog syndrome in our food system. Um, so you have longer term risks like climate change, fundamental structural shifts in supply chains that are starting to occur. And I think it was beautifully illustrated by the New South Wales Flood Inquiry, which uh, Mira Kane and some others shared. He said, look, their number one conclusion at the end of it is none of us are prepared for the next flood. So traditionally, we'll, you know, we worry a lot about uh, dealing with the chronic problems that occur, acute problems that occur and you know, rescuing people from the floods, but we have to recover from that. 
and there's and there is very much a government role in that and we can do better but there's also what the report says one of its key recommendations is how do we build agency in the whole of society to deal with the next environmental shock when it comes and i think to some degree it's made the the long-term risks of climate um, less existential and suddenly we begin to realize that we probably can't keep doing exactly what we're doing forever we are going to have to change. And that's, in my view, is the sign of a good food system and one that continues to innovate. If you cast back to um, you know, the end of World War II, our food system now is very different um, to what it was then. And I'd expect that by the time that you and I retire and, and go off to the grave, it should be completely different again. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a real issue there about, um, I think, it, you know, this is my own, just my own perspective that, um, it's it's a it's a real moral hazard problem. I think that um, when disasters occur, more and more our population or parts of our population are looking to government to fix all the problems, rather than recognising that in fact you know it's a, it's, it's got to be a shared responsibility. And then the more the governments step in to basically take on all the responsibility, the more people then. Uh, have the view, well, whenever there's a disaster, the government should should do everything. Now, I'm, not, I'm being a bit a bit over the top there because, you know, if you look at some of the uh, recent events, I mean, there was a huge amount of effort made locally, particularly around places like Lismore and um, the, through the Hawkesbury by, by local population to to help help people. But to your point, it was it was dealing with the issue after it occurred rather than actually planning for it to occur in the first place. So... Um, you know, the Hawkesbury tape, for example, I mean, I, I don't know the area well. Um, I understand it's a bit of a, where people, a lot of houses have been built largely on the floodplain. And the, some of the recent um, stuff I saw was that they expect housing to increase quite significantly on that floodplain, even though we know that it's potentially more and more of a risk to get flooded, um, which sort of seems a bit like a bit crazy, you know. So, well, uh, yeah. I think the, the when I was pondering and trying to work this through, what struck me is, yes, there, there is a move um, or tendency of people at certain times to say we have a problem, therefore it's government's role to solve it. Um, even in a less controlled society than Australia, it's not. It's everybody's challenge to do it together. And so, you know, the, the, one of the things we know, for example, is that growing in dirt um, with, with um, and not pumping a lot of water is highly cost effective for generating nutritious food. But at the same time, um, if the supermarket wants continual supply um, around that, then at some stage we should seriously look about whether putting more of these base foods, fresh foods, fresh food and vegetables under glass on the side of the hill is better than solely relying on it coming from the floodplain. And these are commercial decisions, these are value change decisions, but these are also individual decisions that, again, we need to give people information around so that they can decide what's the best way to adapt their part of the food system. And I think the role of the government is to help create the narrative and the direction rather than command exactly what we should do. So when we look to the future, I think one of the areas where consumers, where industry, where the researchers and society and government need to come together is in around the role of genetically modified food. Um, 
the you look at the portents in terms of that land, as you said earlier. Isn't on, it? A, isn't it kind of like a scary thing? Genetically modified food, isn't that? The, the it's very scary. Very, very scary to a lot of people. And properly, not done properly, quite rightly, a scary thing. But done properly, I think it's it's absolutely essential to food security, and not just for Australia, but for the world, because we have um, you know less resources available, um, but we still have growing population, and we have populations who want to consume more food as well um, and the you know the, let's go back to the bananas example so um, bananas are prone to diseases particularly a very nasty one called Panama disease TR4 um, we have an incursion in Australia that um, we've been successfully containing within the Tully Valley for the last five to seven years um, but an Australian scientist has actually developed a genetically modified banana um, that is resistant to this disease um, that is now in the ground in other parts of the world. So let's say if the unfortunate thing was to happen that TR4 um, was to come along and wipe out the banana industry in Australia. Um, I think a conversation with our, as a nation whether we would want to have genetically modified bananas in Australia for consumption is something that we should start working through. Um, it's, it's, it's complex. Um, it's very important to bring everybody along for the journey, but it's a, it's a conversation that actually needs to happen. Yeah, no, I've, I, so um, genetically modified foods, it's, it's one, it's dealing with um, changes in the environment, but also, too, I assume it's also about increasing um, production levels as well, better, better suited uh, products that grow, grow more prolifically. And, and also the food that is more nutritious as well. So, um, and um, so the custodianship that lies around it um, is very, very important. Um, but, but I think on the whole, um, the, the technology advantages that are in there are enormous. Uh, and what worries me is that as we see the equally strong force around um, sustainability emerge, I'd hate to see them not be part of the same conversation because to my mind, they are only one conversation, which is how do we produce food sustainably? Yeah, so I mean, the narrative around genetically modified foods is largely around large companies wanting to do it for their own bottom line and put the community at risk in the process. Um, it sounds to me again that's another place where a lot, lot more information, a lot better information being made available to, to communities would would be a benefit. But it's it's not something that I think that would be uh, come necessary from governments that people would necessarily trust governments because um, uh, you know that governments have had a had a bad run in recent times. So it's, I, I don't know how do you get that information out there? Is it is it universities? Um, you know, again, if it's peak bodies uh, through the industry, they'll be questioned about their, their motivations. How do we get a proper discussion going around genetically modified food? Um, I, I think, and I, I highlight this in the paper, I said, you know, the, when you've got shocks that are a front of mind like we've had recently, that's the part to start the, um, the dialogue and the discussion about where to go. Um, it needs to be co-led rather than led by one of the parties because uh, it is a national discussion. We don't have to do this, um, but if it is to our benefit, why wouldn't we do it? Um, and so I think there's a, there's a leadership role here in the technology companies. There's a leadership role in the industries that produce food, and there's a leadership role in government working together 
to actually come up with an informed decision. Because yeah, because right now we can we can feed about three times our population, I think, and so we could uh, we could solve the problem simply by exporting this, I guess. But uh, there's lots of other people around the world that depend on our food for survival. Very much so, and um, and I think what I've done in this paper is only focus on on Australia's food security, but the food security challenge at a global level is larger than we face in Australia. And, and I think from a from a geo, geopolitical point of view, I mean, I think food comes only behind water, probably, or, or maybe um, energy in terms of uh, geopolitical disruption. Um, obviously, water's, I think, probably more important than anything, <laughs> but, uh, well, but food, food's not far behind. And uh, if people aren't getting fed, that's going to be... Uh, it leads to some pretty interesting outcomes. Well, you and I like the classics, Paul, and as you know, the bread rights are, go way back into Roman history. So you know, populations that don't get food are unhappy populations um, and create political instability. This be maybe the last sort of point, maybe just discuss. Um, I think in the paper you talk a bit about um, resilience in, in supply chains and value chains. Right, right now, we, I think we have a very efficient uh, production and distribution system in Australia, although, you know, there's obviously improvements you can make, but it's not necessarily resilient, particularly at a regional level. I mean, what might we do to improve that, particularly to deal with things like uh, uh, disruptions that we see during fires and floods and, and so forth? Yeah. Look, so the, 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 the first most efficient um, thing you look at is just inventory. Um, so an inventory from our individual households all the way back up the supply chain. Um, but also, I think, increasingly for those who produce food. Is uh, that going to work, though, for perishable items? How do you deal with that then? Perishable is far more challenging um, and those things. Uh, and then, um, but so I think the other thing is, this is where you see the intersect between the, the I suppose, the national, international global food system and the local one. Um, there is a role for increased local food production. Um, so if you're isolated out of um, fresh food for a little while, at least you've got something growing locally to do with that. And I think that, uh, they're not, again, they're not competing constructs. They're just um, having a system that has dimensions that are local, that are national and that are international as part of that, that framework. Um, and I think the, the other one is um, that, that also the preparing to recover is, is where a lot of people are going now. So saying, if these shocks come again, and they will, and we don't know which one when, and whether it's climatic or, or trade just derived, it doesn't really matter. But, but ultimately, when, when the last big shock came through in about 2010, for example, West Australia realised it only had enough food for two weeks. <laughs> on some things, obviously, because they make a lot of food in West Australia, but they were relying on on shipments from the eastern seaboard. So, um, so I think once you begin to understand how long is a reasonable period to, pay, to prepare for and how can you get back on your feet quickly? And I think that's a question as much for the businesses as it is for the response. And, and again, if you look at the flood inquiry, um, their thoughts about how to restructure some of the government services to help with the preparedness and the response means that next time it comes, we should be on our feet again more quickly. So, so Doing things more locally, more inventories, I guess, maybe having some warehousing closer to, 
to, to um, consumption. Our, our major um, retailers and distributors have, have made a lot of effort to develop national systems with a lot of centralised um, sort of uh, capability, uh, I assume largely because of cost-driven uh, issues. Uh, it sounds to me like going back the other way is going to cost a bit more. Yes, unfortunately, Paul, I don't see the price of food coming down if we are to do all of these things. Um, but it will, um, yeah, that, that's that's the upshot. We can make our system stronger. Um, we can knock out some vulnerabilities, um, introduce more technology. But on the whole, if you want to make it even stronger and perform at a higher level than it does now, it's difficult to see how we can achieve that without increasing cost. I think the good thing, as you say, um, from, from a trying to sort of reform the system a bit is uh, people having experienced uh, the shock recently, this, this might be a good time to do it because it's front and centre in their minds. Yeah. And look, maybe a closing analogy is to highlight the difference between Australia and um, the US. So one of the largest treasury bills in the US is the, is the, um, is the farm bill, um, which you know puts in a lot of structures and mechanisms to support agriculture. And our farm bills in Australia are, are much less than the US. But on a pure monetary value, three quarters of the farm bill in the US is for food stamps. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and that, so that's there to incentivize a bit of that local production that I'm talking about. But more importantly, it's there to offset the weaknesses in the welfare system um, that the US has compared to Australia. So while there's no doubt a lot of people have been through pain in recent times, and many still are. Um, we do have quite a, a very strong welfare system that does get the, the, the need and the help out to them. And you only need to look at the debate around um, whether constraining welfare to Indigenous populations linked solely to the purchase of food, where they've run some trials that are now up for a review, and highlighting that choice and giving, and giving people informed choices is a success, but probably we need to think about it holistically as a food system rather than solely in its component parts. Well, I guess we'll we'll see how this all pans out over the next couple of years, uh, in particular, JP. Um, particularly if uh, you know a lot of the input costs uh, remain high. Um, so, look, um, certainly like to be good to watch this space and and see if the uh, if the industry and the government can get together and and try and make some improvements in this area. Um, look, that's been great, JP. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining me today. I, I very much enjoyed that conversation and. Uh, all our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today as well. Um, tune in for our next podcast um, in the next month or so uh, to, for another insider take on what's happening in the headlines. Or in the meantime, you can always visit acelallen.com.au uh, for more in-depth articles and insight. And uh, JP's article will be up there very soon. <laughs>